my aim in, in philanthropy is always to set things up and get them to a sustainable level where they will run themselves, where they will do their own fundraising, where they will do their own management. Mm -hmm. And the first charity took me 17 years to get sustainable. The Alpha Talks podcast crafts you and your business into an alpha, not for the faint-hearted. I am Sefer Hakim, serial entrepreneur and your success mentor, founder of the Alpha Movement, and people call me the Alpha. And that's for a reason, of course. With 20 plus years of experience and eight figures portfolio of businesses, myself and the show guests will be striking thunder of top-notch listening in business and mindset. No bull, just first-class value, not like others. To join us now to become your own version of an Alpha. Welcome back, Alphas, to a new inspiring episode of the Alpha Talks podcast. Today, in the studio or online, I've got a very special Alpha for you today. Today, we have the distinct honor of hosting a true pioneer and a trailblazer, Dame Stephanie Shirley, whose extraordinary life journey embodies the spirit of resilience and an unwavering determination. Having escaped the horrors of the World War II as a child refugee, Dame Stephanie's story is a testament to, a, to the triumph of the human spirit against adversity. Her journey from founding all women's software company to pioneering revolutionary work from home practices in the face of gender discrimination has not only written the rules of the game, but has paved the way for generation of inspiring, aspiring women's professionals. Her remarkable achievements, including the valuing of her company at almost $3 billion and the empowerment of enormous staff members, reflect her relentless pursuit of excellence and her unyielding commitment to breaking down barriers. Yet it's her enduring dedication to philanthropy, particularly in the realm of autism, that truly sets her apart. Through her profound contribution and establishment of transformative initiatives, Dame Stephanie has demonstrated that true success lies not just in personal accomplishment, but in the meaningful impact we create for others. Join us as we delve into the remarkable life legacy of Dame Stephanie Churley, learning from her remarkable journey, her unparalleled resilience, and her unshakable belief in the power of technology and philanthropy to create a better world. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to the remarkable Dame Stephanie Churley. Dame, thank you very much for joining me today in the Alpha Talks podcast, and it's really an honor to have you on the show. I like to feel I could be classed as an alpha. I love that. And telling all the audience, we had a chat before uh, going now in recording, and it was one of the best chats I had in the podcast. So I really appreciate your welcoming heart. And even the questions that you ask me comes, you know, from a true heart that you really care about the person in front of you. I appreciate that. Thank you again for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Dame, let's start with a very nice kind of question. Let's say that as soon as we publish the episode, people will look at the thumbnail that we will create, the title, and they will think it's very interesting. What can we promise them that they will gain today if they gave us their time? Anything that comes to your mind? Learning to do the right thing. Wow. Wow. I love that. I love that. You know, it's um, a lot of people would say knowledge, value, you know, all these things. But 
getting or learning to do the right things, it's an extremely strong statement. This is something that I thought you were doing with Alpha, sort of really thinking of values and ethics and, and the spirituality of life, not just the pounds, uh, the, the monetary aspects, the material aspects of entrepreneurism. True, I love that. Dean, let's start a little bit with your early memories of your childhood back in Germany and before the outbreak of the World War. How was it? Can you just take us back to these moments? Well, I was five when we left. And uh, so I really only remember the, the childish things. Of Vienna, I can remember with affection the, the storks that nested in the rooftops of Vienna. And they were very messy nests they were too. I can, you know, for a child, that's fascinating to see it. Um, I remember being sent off on the train, um, largely because parents, mainly parents, the children were not weeping. I think we'd been told we were going on holiday. The parents were weeping and doing a sort of wailing sound, which I wasn't accustomed to, but was really coming from the heart. So I remember that. I remember the journey, sleeping on the floor on sheets of corrugated cardboard, eating, I presume, sandwiches. I can't really remember what. I remember a little boy that kept being sick the whole of the two and a half day journey, kept being sick. And uh, I even think I can remember his name, Peter, you know why. Um, I can remember losing my doll, which is much more important to me than losing my home. Um, you know, it is, I, I have childish memories and I had a good childhood, really. By having this kind of experience as a, a, a refugee, child refugee, how did this shape, I would say, your worldview and your sense of resilience? How can, you, how can you tell us this? It made the whole of my life. It was such an impactful thing. It, it made, you, you've mentioned resilience, but I know that having coped with that, no change can really throw me anymore. So having dealt with that change, I've learned to love change. I actually pride myself on being able to cope with change. And that's a good quality, I think, to have for an entrepreneur. The other thing that it did for me was to, when I arrived in England, I had wonderful welcome from everybody, but there were some people and the neighbors of my foster parents um, who kept saying to me, and they repeated it in my memory, aren't you lucky to be saved? Aren't you lucky to be saved? And that had a deep impression on me and made me needing to justify my survival. Um, and that's not a healthy atmosphere to grow up in, in a six-year-old. But I do feel that I, I've been lucky. And therefore, I need to feel that my life was worth saving. And that has driven my life. It, you know, I don't want to exaggerate, but it, it is still as active for me today as it was 80 years ago. When you arrived to England, of course, you faced a lot of challenges, of course. What was the biggest one that you remember? Well, language, obviously, because yeah. we arrived um, not speaking any English. Uh, my father had taught us a few bizarre phrases so that I could say things like slow combustion stove wow. and fine screen vapor. Um, but I didn't know how to ask, forgive me, uh, how to yeah. go to the toilet, which is wow. much more important for a five-year-old. Um, so 
the language was a difficulty and people also got muddled up between German and Nazis. We were at war with, with, with the Nazis, but, but the just being German shouldn't have been so, such a problem for me, but it was. I learned the language pretty quickly. I arrived in July. By September, my English was good enough to go to school. No way. Two months. Two months. Well, I was only five. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I was in a family that didn't speak German, so it was mm -hmm. immediately sort of sure. immersed in, in, in English. I find English a beautiful language. It's very rich. Um, I, I, I do a lot of public speaking, and I really enjoy playing with language there. Mm -hmm. um, and it is important to me, I think. But looking at world events, you think, wouldn't it be better if we all spoke the same language and started off on the same footing? True, true, true. Your early separation from your family, did it help, like I would say, did it build in you the sense that you want to create a community around you? And that's what you did with your company. I don't know whether it was building a community around me. I was very yeah. conscious that I hadn't got any extended family. There was nobody that knew me, my, my parents or, or um, and, and so to perhaps in, in a way one was com compensating for that. I don't yeah. think so. Um, mm. I think I, I fell into business for quite different reasons. I was sick and tired of being um, treated like a second class citizen I was sick and tired of being patronized. Uh, I'd been patronized as a Jew and worse, uh, but I wasn't going to be patronized as a woman. And women at that time were debarred from most financial transactions true, so that true. we couldn't open a bank account without, I couldn't open my company's bank account without my husband's authorization. Yeah. Um, I couldn't work on the stock exchange. Women couldn't drive a bus, fly an aeroplane. There were lots of things that we were legally not allowed to do. So women, second-class citizens, and I began to get quite feisty and, and, and sort of say, you know, uh, I, I, I don't want to put up with this. I'm going to try and make things better. And soon learned that it was better to start my own company and do some positive discrimination where I employed primarily women and women with children working so, from their own homes. Now, this was in 1962. You know, so I love what I, sorry to interrupt you, but what I love, you chose something that at that time was extremely impossible to do. And you went hands, hands on and you just broke the, the, the norm. That's something That's remarkable. Fair. I mean, I've been described as disruptive. And when yeah. they first used that term, I thought they were being rude. Um, but I realized that, yes, if you're going to do anything as an entrepreneur, you do need to be disruptive. You do need to, to think big. You do need to think long term. And, and, and I did. But it was a very slow burn. It really was. Very inspiring. One question here. You... you... Why, what inspired you to go towards technology and uh, computing word? That's one thing. And the second is it's a male dominated by nature. Even now <laughs> you attack yes, to this, you know, the one thing that it's okay. It's a male dominated thing. And it's technology at that time. In the technology at the moment, something between 20 and 30% uh, of the, the workforce is, is female. Yeah. And that's after many, many years. 
So it, it was revolutionary. Uh, what was your question? I've forgotten. Uh, what made you to uh, go towards oh, yes. com- technology and computing? Yeah. What was the inspiration behind it? I've been lucky. At any time, I've known what I wanted to do. I've known who I wanted to become. And I wanted to become the world's greatest mathematician. Wow. Solve something called Fermat's Last Theorem. This was at about the age of 11. By the time I was 18, I, I began to realize that I hadn't got it in me to contribute to mathematics in that mm-hmm. way. But the computer industry came along and you needed mathematics for computing in the early days. And so I was able to switch direction pretty well overnight or over month um, and um, have never looked back because wow. with, with a new field like computing, I was able to make a, a, a contribution, um, and that's what entrepreneurs, you know, we're trying to, to make the world a better place. We want to make some contribution and something that we can measure and see and say, yes, I was part of making that happen. True, true, true. The question here, what were the challenges in that early times? And how did you overcome? Because we want to talk about Steve, the name that you use to move things. Well, I was very innocent as regards marketing. And so one of the things I did was very simple. I looked in the newspapers for advertisements for programmers mm-hmm. and then wrote to people sort of saying, I'm not applying for a job, but I can do get programming work done for you on a consultancy basis. Mm-hmm. And I was launching these letters out probably about 10 a week. Um, And I thought they were professional letters and they were professionally presented, but they got absolutely no response whatsoever. Zero response. My my late husband suggested that I use the family nickname of Steve Mm -hmm. instead of Stephanie. Mm. So I became Steve. (laughs) And surprise, surprise, I began to get some responses. Uh, people replied to my letters. They, we set up some meetings, and it was a bit of a shock when I walked through the door that Steve was a woman. But I'd got through the door, and that's the important thing. I had a good story to tell, uh, exactly. and I began to get some work. So it wow. was a question of dissembling and, and pretending to be a man, taking advantage of the fact that we were not not visual at those days kind of a marketing tactic that opened doors. It was also, you know, I think it's important in business to be memorable and to um, distinguish yourself from from the competition. I love that. Exactly. I was remembered for that. Um, Sometimes it was facetious, Steve and her girls. Um, Mm -hmm. But other times it was, um, we, we were just remembered. Oh, yes, I've heard of that company. And that's a very valuable thing for an organization to have in the early days. Because we started very, very small uh, with six pounds capital, um, wow. worth about a hundred pounds in today's terms. Wow. Um, and it was years before we became anything like professional. One of the things that yeah. made us more professional was um, I wanted to take out insurance for professional indemnity mm-hmm. uh, because we were doing a project that sort of had some national 
um, significance. And the, the quotation was so expensive that I thought, I can't afford that. How can I get that protection? Oh, I'll become a late limited liability company. Because mm. up to that time, I hadn't been. So I was always finding ways to do things that were um, different um, and achieved what, what it was that I was trying to get. I, I, I settled into business very, very well because I, I, I loved it. And uh, I remember the, the early days in particular with, with, with great affection. I love that. You said something very interesting because these days or currently, entrepreneurs look for businesses that will turn profitable very quick due to the social media, due to the comparison and, and, and. Can you tell us how long did it take you to say that now I have a business, now the business makes money? Because the perception these days is absolutely, sometimes it's a pity to see people thinking that you will go into business, you will turn it around in one year and be a oh, successful no. businessman. Or no, I was talking with time scales. I was thinking long term. I was thinking long term of building up an organization, not as, as we've said before, not as family, but I was just ambitious, ambitious for me, ambitious for women generally. And I knew if we succeeded, it would really do something for women. And if we failed, it would be disastrous for women because mm. people would say, oh, yes, we, we, we tried a, a company of women and it was, was a disaster. Mm -hmm. So it was an ambition and a goal to you that where you never lose. I don't think so. I always mm. want continuous improvement. Um, it took about five years before I was conscious. I can remember saying what one Christmas lunch with family friends. Yeah. Oh, the company's it's flying now, I said. Five um, years. And it was. And that was December. By January, I'd had some disaster that really made me reconsider that. Mm -hmm. And it's always, it's a very tentative progress with, with a business. You, you can lose clients. You can lose staff, key staff, you can lose confidence, you can lose your health. And all the time you've got to, the responsibility of driving disparate group of, of, of people, some of whom you can't even see um, because we were working by telephone and post. True, true. But then what made you focus on uh, starting up a business that is only run by women? Even in that time, it was very hard, but like, Why it was this, I would say, your way to go? I want to create a business that's only with women. Because I wanted something that was, I was sick and tired of being patronized. And I wanted a, a group in which I could thrive, in which other women could thrive. And I mm -hmm. guess that the sort of things I was looking for, family friendly, mm -hmm. uh, great flexibility. These were things that other women uh, would, would be driven by uh, and find attractive. I love that. I love that. Then if we move to your philanthropic efforts, what led you to go to this direction? Well, I hope I've always been a sort of giving person, yeah. giving of my time, giving of my skills. Social justice, really, the world is a very unfair place and charities and philanthropies as a way of making a little bit of difference By, by helping, well, I was going to say the poor, but I don't really mean mm -hmm. the poor. The yeah. poor in spirit. The needed. The people the who needy. need. The needy. Yeah, the needy. Um, now, some businesses think of the needy as just being a, a complete aggravation 
and that mm-hmm. it gets in the way of business and making profits. But I was not so profit oriented. I was much more lifestyle oriented. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted a lifestyle for me and for other women that was um, fitted in with women's traditional desires. After how many years you sold out your company? It took you how long? Sold out after about 40 years. 40 years. Wow. For for you as dame, did you feel that you it's time to sell it out? Or it, like, you know, sometimes as business owners, we think that this is always our baby. Why it, what this is, why it made you to decide to sell the business that you created and you made a huge impact? Well, I really would always wanted a, a different long-term solution, but I failed to achieve it. Um, what I wanted to do is I started giving my shares in the company mm-hmm. to the staff um, and aimed really for, for some co-ownership uh, model of business that was not only family-friendly, but was more people-friendly generally and less profit, short-term profit-oriented. That made quite a difference in that um, I looked, approached tasks and situations in a different way. Um, I wasn't just looking for the bottom line, but also for the social impact. And to a certain extent, there's a a third bottom line, the environmental impact of what one does. And we think human being, you know, if we're to keep the humans at the in the heart of technology we have to always remember these the basic bottom line the financial the finances um, the, the, the social bottom line what, what difference does this make in the world and finally the environmental uh, issues and there may be absolutely. others absolutely so, you know i'm driven by i'm not heavily driven by money um, money to me is a necessary almost evil but it's necessary i respect money i like the choice that and lifestyle that money mm-hmm. has provided for me I, i wouldn't like to be poor again and i have mm-hmm. been poor but um, money is not everything as far as i'm concerned true true if we're talking about shirley's foundation what will be your most memorable success story from the project That was supported by Charlie's Foundation. Well, there's and close to your heart, like close to your heart. Yeah, well, the one close to my heart is definitely a school that I set up for children with autism, mm-hmm. uh, where the, the pupils are aged five to 25, many without speech, many of them with epilepsy, many of them with complex needs. And that has the most wonderful atmosphere of love when you go there. I was there last Wednesday. I, I go two or three times a year, that's all, because it's now established. My aim in, in philanthropy is always to set things up and get them to a sustainable level where they will run themselves, where they will do their own fundraising, where they will do their own management. Mm-hmm. And the first charity took me 17 years to get sustainable. The wow, second seven, one 17 five, years. 17 years. Wow. The second one, Prior's Court, took me five years. Five years where that was the main thing in my life. At the end of the mm-hmm. five years, it was freestanding and I could walk wow. away from it. 
And the last charity, which is a medical research charity, that only took me two years, but it was altogether on a different scale. Prior's Court gives me enormous pleasure in that the children, you can see them between visits, you can see them grow and develop, you can see them calm down, you can see them start to smile, occasionally start to speak, but speech doesn't often come late. They are very vulnerable pupils and they bring out the best in, in, in everybody who works there. That's your absolute fulfillment. I feel it. That's how you fulfill yourself. That's really how I feel it. Am I correct? Yes, of course. When I come back from Prior's Court, family always sort of say, you, you know, you're always full of smiles. And I am. Mm -hmm. I'm very happy with that. I love that. Then if I ask you what lessons that you've learned from your experience in business that you wish that you have known before you started, what would be that? I think the cash flow point was, was one that was a, a very yeah. basic one that would have saved me years of problems. True, 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 true. I was going to say the importance of, of people management. I started off as a software house because I like software. I wanted to work in software. I wanted to write software. But very short, very quickly, I found that I delegated the software and was left mm. with the administration, the human resources, the cash flow, the, um, all, all the things that make a business. And I, I found that very unattractive and unappealing. And I never got back to doing technical work. I have to get my satisfaction from making new things happen in a different way. Mm -hmm. I love that. And if, if we talk about what was your values and principles at that time, did it change over time, the empire that you've built from a business perspective, from a philanthropy perspective, your values and principles, did it change? Modified, I would say, rather uh. than changed. Became more professional. We talked about, rather than just talking, we're work, working in teams. Women are traditionally good at working in teams and, and in multitasking. Absolutely correct. Like our values modify and get adapted, but never change. That's what I believe. I mean, you know, there's something that is a kernel that in me that is not going to change. And I don't imagine any temptation or happening would, would make me behave in a different way. Mm -hmm. But one does change and modify. What I was going to say was that I, I learned in talk, instead of talking about teams, talking about a collegiate culture. Mm -hmm. that when co-ownership came in and, and the company started to be co partly owned by its staff, it had an enormous electrifying impact on um, staff morale. The, the, mm -hmm. the, the suddenly worked as they'd never worked before, more quickly, more accurately, more, more strategically. It, it was quite an exciting time. I love that. I love that. Then now, technology and gender changed over time. Women in technology, we just saw or we spoke about it, that now women became, I would say, part of technology, still male dominant. But there is an absolute change. Do you see that these days? Yes. I noticed, though, that in artificial intelligence, for example, 
there mm -hmm. haven't been many women involved in the design of systems. Um, and so they're, they're repeating some of the mistakes that are just gender mistakes. And, and that's quite disappointing. We need to get as many people involved, deeply involved in the design of technical systems. Otherwise, we, we lose the humanity that is inside that technical system. True, 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 true. What was the most, I would say, fulfilling aspect of your company or your business that was really close to you, the most fulfilled? And I do understand it's not a monetary thing for you. So what was it? I think it was just protecting women's position in society that over the years, I realized I had made a difference in bringing women to the fore, in having women's work acknowledged and accepted, and basic things like equal pay, career prospect, the, the top positions being open to women. These are things that have happened in my lifetime, and I know I have been part of it. And that makes me very proud, but also very content with mm -hmm. my impact. I love that. If I talk about work-life balance, the thing that a lot of people talk about, what do you think work-life balance? Does it exist or it's kind of hard for entrepreneurs? Well, at the moment, the world is moving towards a lot of homeworking, which I've always mm -hmm. done. And I find that that home life balance is easier to achieve at home. Other people have found differently. They have found that work performance goes down, that team working goes down. Um, and so the work-life balance varies from industry to industry, um, but has the concept of pure respect for the individual. They're, they're not just there to, for what they produce. They're there as an individual. They have to be looked after. They have to be supported. They have to be led. But it, but it is the importance of the individual human and their brain. Wow. Mm -hmm. Because I believe as an entrepreneur, it's very hard when you're setting up something or setting up a business, the concept of work-life balance, it doesn't exist. You work <laughs> it doesn't when... exist for me. It doesn't Absolutely. exist for me. It, yeah. it never has. I've never had that balance. It's been all work. Um, I do realize that it's not a healthy way to yes. um, be. And we spoke earlier before we started um, about your, your sportsing activities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a sedentary person. I sit at a desk, but... I still have learned to look after myself, mind, body, and spirit. Ooh. So I, I swim a quarter of a mile twice a week. Yeah. I try to eat sensibly. This is looking after myself. And I used not to. It used to be mm -hmm. everything was, was thrown into the business. And then I had a breakdown and I learned what, what must I do? And that is to look after myself. True. It's most important. That's why even in... When we're extremely busy, we try to find time to take care of our health because yes. without it, uh, nothing works. If, if you would give an advice for young entrepreneurs that they really want to make an impact in the world or the community where they live in, what would be your top advice to them? To aim to be disruptive, to think big, which probably means thinking international right from the beginning, 
uh, not that you work internationally, but you're thinking, how, how will this extend later on internationally? Um, and to think in terms of doing the right thing politically, economically, personally, um, rather than just doing things right. I mean, I started off, I'm very Germanic in my style in that I like things to be efficient. I really mm -hmm. like things to be efficient. Then you move away from that. Efficiency is not what, you, what you're after. It's, it's effectiveness. Well, what effect are you having on the world? Mm -hmm. And um, I've, I've achieved that through my business and I'm now a very happy person. I love that. If I ask you a question, what is success means to you? Because you know, success is different for everyone, defines success in a different way. And I believe it changes over time as well. What's success for you? I think success for me now is, is choice, um, mm. that I have um, choice as to how I spend my time, uh, what I do with my money, uh, and I've given most of it away. Yeah. I find that very satisfying. So um, there are some, to, to be wealthy is, is quite a heavyweight responsibility. Mm. And relationships have changed very much when it's known that you have money. And that's not a pleasant thing to, to learn to deal with. But success is when you make real friends, uh, when you have real, not material things, but... Connect, not material connections. Um, uh, friendships um, I mean I, I'm a collector of, of, of art uh, mm. and that gives me an enormous pleasure yes you could only do it if you're successful because it is quite mm. expensive um, I don't work in art at all but I, I think I know what I what, what makes good art so I buy very selectively mm. and I love it I love it yeah. and that to me is success if I ask you, what are your hobbies? What's going to be, what, what's your hobbies? I, I could understand it's swimming, art, am I correct? Or Yeah, I don't think I do much else. What else do I do? <laughs> I, I work, I work. Yeah, I enjoy my yeah. work. It's, it's easy these days. Uh, I don't have to do it. It's not just something I do when I'd rather be doing something else. It's what I actually mm. want to do. And work it means researching for speeches that I'm going to give. I do quite a lot of writing. And I, I, I get asked to visit places and sort of unveil a statue. It's a wonderful opportunity to really think about that particular statue and what it means in society. And I, it, it's a real privilege to be invited to be part of the artist's work by unveiling it to the public. Wow, wow. Can I ask you this question? What motivates you to keep going? What inspires you to keep going? What else would I do? Um, tell me, like, you know, it's like, sometimes people think like, okay, we will work till age of 40, 50, and we retire. You know, what motivates you to keep going, keep going, keep going? You 100% you want to leave an, a legacy. You want to, to leave an impact, a big impact on the world. Is that the thing that motivates you? I used to be asked about legacy and would sort of say I'm not interested, I haven't had mm -hmm. buildings named after me or anything mm -hmm. like that. But it is an age consideration. As I've aged, I have become interested in legacy. Mm -hmm. Is this something that will endure uh, after my death? And one of the universities in, in Britain 
um, has set up an archive for uh, philanthropists and all my all my details all my philanthropic work is archived there in the university and I feel hmm that's very nice in a hundred years time somebody will be reading about what I've done wow. and that makes me very happy wow what would be I would say as businesswoman a successful businesswoman had an amazing journey what are your goals and I believe you have goals what are your goals right now Well, they vary with time, of course. Yeah. I think my goal now is to go on working at a level that is healthy for me um, and to continue to, to get great joy from it. Um, I, I, there's a number of people who are watching what I do, and I have gradually tailed off my work as, as the years go by. But I'm now 90 years old. I still work five days a week, and I still enjoy it. So I want to go on I doing it. I love that. You know, you know, Dame, like a couple of entrepreneurs, I would say, which tells me, safe. I only work two days a week. For me, myself, I can't believe that. I can't. How come? I, literally, I work six to seven days a week. That's yeah. part of being an entrepreneur. That's part of the not correct work-life balance, I would say. But that's the journey. So you still work five days a week. At least. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Dame, what's the message you want to leave our audience with today? What kind of message you want to leave the audience? I think I've mentioned it before, really. It's this knowing that it's not the legislation that allows you to do something that's right, um, but the, there are certain things that are right and proper that grow you as an individual, that develop the world around you, that is positive, alpha thing to do um, rather than take, take, take. The world at the moment is very selfish. The, the, I'm not talking politics, I'm talking about the general culture. Um, people are much more selfish, I think, than they used to be. And that is partly the result of wealth. Um, mm. I don't think wealth is an easy thing to deal with. So I hope that I can keep going and maintain that ethical stance. Dame, the last question. How do you define alpha? What's alpha for you? Being the very best that you can, putting the, all the effort that, that's required into each task. So I mean, one, one wonderful thing I have, yeah. if I am an alpha, um, is I, I never have really regrets because I know each thing that I've done, I've done the best of my ability. I've trained myself as best I can. I've spent the time on it, I've checked it, and, and so it's as good as I can do. I can't do better than my best. Mm -hmm. um, and that is something that I really, I think I live by, really. I, I, I want to do my best all the time. Mm -hmm. I love that. Dame, thank you very much for being with us today. It's really an honor, and you're an inspiration. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the show. I did indeed. Yes, thank I you did very, indeed. very, very much. And I hope we do one more and one more, one more episodes with you again. Thank you very much. That wraps another inspiring episode of today's show. I hope that this episode has ignited your inner alpha and left you feeling inspired, motivated, and ready to conquer any challenge that comes your way. Remember, alphas aren't born, they're made. 
It isn't about dominating others. It's about embracing your authenticity, leading with integrity, and making a positive impact on the world. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the Alpha Talks on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a review and share the podcast with your fellow Alphas. Also connect with us on social media at Safer Hakim. Share your thoughts, insight, and stories of personal and business growth with us. Let's create a movement of Alphas supporting one another. The world needs more Alphas like you, exactly. Until next time, stay bold, stay driven, and stay Alpha.